Hello everybody and welcome to the Growing Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast for this week. We talk about WandaVision Episode 5, the latest Studio Ghibli movie, a brand new type of whiskey, a brand new D&D show, and I update y'all on a couple of things. That's right, this week we get into WandaVision Episode 5, which is at the very end of the podcast, in case you uh, don't want to be spoiled on what the hell goes on there. We talk about Earwig and the Witch, which is the latest movie from Studio Ghibli, directed by Goro Miyazaki. It is on HBO Max, uh, and I'll talk about that a little later on. Uh, we talk about Stuff of Legends, which is a brand new D&D show that has to deal with puppets. So if you like puppets, you maybe want to check that out. Uh, I update the uh, news story on the, the Harry Potter HBO show. And then, oh crap, I'm like looking at the the podcast right now. What the hell would I talk about in the middle bit? I can't I can't remember. There's another thing um, that we talk about, and it's completely, I've completely forgotten um, what it is. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's good, solid episode, clearly. And I hope you enjoy it. And if you like the Going Upcast and wish to support the Going Cast, please feel free to swing over to patreon.com forward slash Going Upcast, where you can become a patron to get access to the movie commentary tracks and the Pokemon Nuzlocke run um, on over over on that there site. Uh, in terms of other things, I'm good. Uh, a rock climbing gym just opened up near my house, and I went and gave that a shot and then left like 20 minutes later because it uh, turns out, not really built for rock climbing anymore. Uh, last time I really went rock climbing, I weighed 40 pounds less than I do now. And, uh, lifting my 200-pound frame up a fucking inclined, uh, wall with just my hip fingertips, uh, turns out is pretty rough. And my shoulders and back are very much feeling it, even only after 20 minutes. So, probably not gonna be doing that again, yeah, anytime soon. But it was fun to rehash the old days, the old and golden days. Let's get into this podcast. There's one thing I enjoy in this world, as it is fairly late at night and I'm about to go to bed, is new D&D shows. I've been watching D&D shows for a very long time, uh, since my junior year of college when I first started watching Critical Role. Um, not too far after they kind of got started. I think I was like five to six months late to the game. I was in there pretty early um, and been watching it ever since. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of, of different things like Girls Guts Glory, uh, High Rollers, Critical Role, and a bunch of others that I've tried on and off throughout, you know, life. And a brand new show came out that I gave a shot. Um, it was sent to me by actually a few people, uh, when it came out because apparently my love of D&D and my love of puppets is known to many an individual. And so when Stuff of Legends came out, which is a... D&D real play show um, with a party of four people and the and the D- and the DM. And what's great about this show is that it is done where all of the in-game action is shown to us uh, after the fact with puppets. And so the puppets are like lip-synced to what the players are saying at the table and it just like cuts away and basically, you know, has the the battles and all the interactions with NPCs in puppet form. And it is almost a no-brainer. Like, it's one of those things you watch and you're just like, how has nobody thought of this before? I'm sure people have, but this is the first uh, example of this that I've seen. And it makes a lot of sense 
because if you got your folks like in character and stuff like that then all the fucking puppet lines are there for you and then you can just fucking recreate it with puppets afterwards and it's brilliant um and it's it's a lot of fun the cast is uh it's like they've a, a lot of them have never played D before and so them as a foursome uh with this person as the dm whose name is josh ovenshire joshua ovenshire i think um they've never played together before and you kind of get that feel um that it's it's a fresh environment um for all of them so it's got the it's got the usual kind of rough patch that you would expect in uh, in a D game but i don't think that's the show's fault because that seems pretty common for every D game i've ever been a part of like if it's a brand new party that have never played for it especially together you're gonna have some rough patches that being said they kind of get into it easier than other parties i've seen and i'm not sure if that is more to do with the fact that they're like kind of professionally brought in to be a part of the show you know like the context of it is different to where like the normal nerves of like role-playing a character go away and stuff like that um i think that's probably got a lot to do with it where they're like oh we're a, a, a foursome you know and we're supposed to get along and they like know that right out the gate and they don't have there's no time wasted of them like becoming friends they're already in in canon like buddies and uh i think that that helps a lot um i think the dming is pretty okay for for the sh i think it's great for the show let's put it that way there are definitely some rule changes where i'm sitting there and being like that doesn't that's not right um but it's a very simplified trimmed down version of DD. that being said some of the character things are pretty interesting uh there's this one character whose name is um majelica plum played by lisa um foils uh who has a backpack full of spell scrolls and what they do is they don't cast like spells they will randomly roll and reach into their backpack for a spell scroll off of the fucking like list that their character is and then whatever number they roll is the random spell they cast and i'm just like that's a lot of fun that's a fun twist on like the wild magic thing um i thought that was great and they only have like 20 spells in their backpack so i imagine that this is not supposed to be like a very long show um i imagine it'll probably be like a handful of episodes and tell like a pretty tight story and then fucking that's it um but i think it's really fun like so far it's 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 really good probably my favorite character uh is uh areola areola borealis uh played by uh shauna malcolm uh who is who is phenomenal and the fucking puppet man the fucking puppet the internet's already gone crazy with that fucking puppet uh it's a it's a dragonborn barbarian with just these fucking massive puppet tits just big old puppet tits um and that's just fucking hilarious uh the other two characters are uh slippy richardson nicknamed slippy dick played by brandon rogers who's a comedian um that's a fantastic character i've never they they did something that i've never really thought about they're playing a kuatoa which is a uh like a fish person basically um and their skin is toxic uh no sorry their skin is poisonous it's poisonous it's poisonous skin 
Um, because if you touch it and it seeps into your skin, then it, then it affects you because it gets into the bloodstream. So it's poisonous skin. And the first thing that, uh, Slippy did was take all their clothes off and like tackle a goblin. So by hugging the goblin, the goblin got like embedded with Kuatoa poison. And I'm like, that's really clever. Also fucking hilarious. Like, you know, it's just, it's, oh my God, that's. If I was that DM, I would have been like, okay, sure, let's see how that goes. And then the the fourth member of the party is somebody named Lasercorn, um, who I've never heard of, playing a, a dwarf with an axe for a hand named Hatchet Hand. And, uh, yep, it's on YouTube. Uh, I did enjoy it, I think, because the problem with D&D shows, it's definitely something I've harped on about in the past. The barrier of entry for, like, every D&D show I'm aware of is that they've been going on for a really long time. Critical Role is the best example of that. These are... That's a real play fucking adventure. And if you don't have the time to invest in it, then you're just never going to get on board. Whenever Critical Role does, like, season three of Critical Role, just like when season two hit, it's going to be huge. Because I know there's a lot of people out there who really want to experience Critical Role, but... There are 120 plus episodes into season two and there's 115 episodes in season one. The barrier of entry is so goddamn high for that show. Who has time for that? If somebody presented that to me, like, just watch this, I'd be like, fuck you. I'm not watching that. That's insane. Each episode's three hours long minimum. So, yeah, this is 30 minutes. It has one episode. It's just started. So... This is the, I mean, now's the time. If you, if you want to watch a D&D show and get in on the ground floor, here's your chance. Stuff of Legends, now available on YouTube. I'm not sponsored, but I just thought it was fun. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Real quick, fun bonus thing that I've learned since we talked about the Harry Potter HBO show, HBO Max show that is in the works, um, is that the current... Um, kind of distribution rights of Harry Potter is in contract with NBC Universal. So they've got the the current distribution rights and will retain their distribution rights to, I believe, 2026. It's either 2025 or 2026, which means even like this show cannot come out until after that deal is done. Unless they, like, buy out the contract or something like that, which I suppose is possible. Um, but what that does give HBO Max is, like, five to... Four to five years to develop the show. They, they, can, they can make the show. They can do everything about the show. They just can't release it until the contract is up. Um, so we've got a long time before that show sees the light of day. And if it, if and when it does, then you know it'll be roughly around that time. Uh, so we'll kind of have to wait and see what happens there. Um, I will definitely watch it. There's no way in fuck I can't watch it. But you know, it's just just something to something to keep in mind. It's gonna be a while. Um, it's gonna be so long to the point where, I mean, I think Harry Potter fans will still very much exist during that time period but we'll like I don't know will they will they in the same ravenous way that they do I mean I I would argue they don't really exist now but I know they do I know they do I'm just the cynical asshole but uh yeah it's just gonna it's just gonna be a while 
move on to the next thing in the podcast. In my eternal quest to try lots of different boozes and cruises and drinks and things, um, got my hands on a on a new thing for for my palate, which was um, Angel's Envy, which I've often seen at like Costco and um, Total Wines in this area, and it is a rye whiskey aged in. Uh, Caribbean rum barrels. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that anything aged in a rum barrel instantly makes me go, okay. Because my all-time favorite gold standard when it comes to alcohol, uh, Belvini Caribbean cask is aged in rum barrels. And so, for me, the, the claim of being aged in a rum barrel instantly makes me be more suspicious of your flavor and I'm instantly more aggressive towards my rating for that alcohol because you are going toe to toe with my with my number one favorite alcohol which is Belvini Caribbean cask like there's no avoiding that that's just what you've decided to do and so Angel Envy has decided to step up to the plate um, the, the, I don't have it with me. I'm just describing it to you after the fact of having tried it. Um, the initial hit when you go for that schnifter is you get hints of sugar. Um, essentially either brown sugar or maple syrup, whichever way you fancy it. That's the predominant scent that you get with Angel's Envy. The initial flavor is very syrupy. It does, not in terms of consistency, but in terms of flavor. It really does taste like somebody just dumped some alcohol into some maple syrup and then called it a day. I didn't detect any fucking rum flavors. I barely got any whiskey flavors. It has a very sharp burn of alcohol, which to me suggests that this is not a very old drink, as in it is not mellowed out in barrels for very long. Um, this is why I use the Caribbean cask as my gold standard because the Caribbean cask is aged 14 years and apparently 14 years is when shit fucking mellows. So if you ever drink like whiskey or anything that's aged and it makes you go because <sighs> there's that burn of alcohol, that shit's young and that shit's been in barrels not very long. And that's how you can tell because it's got that burn of alcohol. It has not had the time for the wood to fucking mellow that shit out. When people say, ooh, that's smooth, when they drink like a 20-year fucking whiskey, it doesn't have the burn. As far as I can tell with my incredible sommelier palate or whatever the fuck, you know, that's the predominant difference between old and young whiskeys is the lack of an alcoholic burn. The lack of that fucking sharp flavor that you get with just fucking straight alcohol. So, that's how you can tell. And while it wasn't bad by any means, it's incredibly expensive for what it is. And you are left with the feeling in your mouth like you just ate some fucking pancakes. That's the predominant flavor before, during, and after consuming this alcohol is maple syrup. If you like maple syrup, this shit's for you. 100%. I'm amazed they don't market it as maple syrup whiskey. Probably because 
Who the fuck is going to buy maple syrup whiskey? It sounds awful. But then again, I'm not much of a syrup person. Um, I, I, I like it. On pancakes, waffles, and French toast. And that's it. That's the only culinary acceptable place for syrup. And then you'll be like, what about chicken and waffles? And then I come back to you and be like, what did I just say? Pancakes, waffles, and French toast. Chicken and waffles. It's got one of those three things right there. Looking at you, McGriddle. Um, yeah, it's 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 okay. Um, it yeah, I mean, it's expensive for what it is, and uh, if you don't like maple syrup, you will not like it. Full stop. But I have long been curious about it, and um, in terms of my rum aged whiskeys that are not rum list, we go Belvini Caribbean Cask, Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve. Angel's Envy. One, two, three. And there's, there's only three because those are the only ones I've tried. I think. Um, I either have a bottle of cognac that was aged in rum barrel. No, what do I have? I think, I think I've got something else that's aged in rum barrels. I think I'm wrong, though, because I think what I'm thinking of is just my bottle of rum, which um, is superb. And I fucking love it. I'm not actually sure I've talked about that on the podcast yet. I don't think I have. Hold on, let me go get it. Okay. Okay. So, I don't know how to pronounce it. Kanchi, K-A-N-I-C-H-E with an accent mark, rum. Kanichi. Kanichi rum? Might be Kanichi. Um, it's artisanal rum. Uh, this is the Perfection Doublewood variety. This is imported from Panama. It comes in a shockingly red pine wood box. Like pine wood derby car. I think it's like balsa wood or something equally cheap. But it is actual wood. So that's fun. It comes in this bottle. Um, there, there keeps being like condensation or something collecting on the inside of this bottle, which is odd. I've never, I've never seen that. It's almost like the cork isn't quite as, um, airtight as I, I want it to be. It's weird. It's like, it's like fogging up the inside of the bottle. I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, yeah, but it's Kenichi Rum, uh, Perfection, Doublewood. Um, in order to attain optimum finesse, this special rum has been aged in bourbon casks and finished in old brandy casks so there you go it uh it's 40% distilled in Panama it's fucking great like it's like drinking like cinnamon toffee with some notes of vanilla it's so fucking perb and as somebody who never really drank rum like this is my first bottle of rum that I've purchased straight for me and I'm not, I mean, I'll drink a cocktail in like a fucking restaurant or whatever. But when it comes to like drinking at home, I'm very much, I, I just go for like the straight stuff. Um, like I'll just drink this, this rum straight. I don't mix it with anything. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, I don't like sodas and I don't want to spend a bunch of money on the various ingredients I need to make a mixed drink. Um, I, I have the ingredients to make one mixed drink 
And that is my Casa Dragones top shelf, which I do make on occasion when I want to feel fancy. Um, but most of the time, I just want a quick drink. And so I prepare most of my drinks the exact same way. I'll take like a fucking whiskey glass and I'll fill it with ice like to the brim. Um, and then I'll just glug whatever bottle I'm in the mood for until it's like a full glass of that shit. And then for over the course from like, you know, right after I get off work to before I go to bed, I'm, I just drink that one drink um, the whole time. So that's that's kind of how I go. So I'm always on the hunt for straight liquors that just taste amazing. And this Kanachi Perfection Rum, um, Perfection Rum is fantastic. Like, it's one of the best liquors I've put in my mouth. It's fucking great. Um, I, I, I got it completely on a whim. I had nothing else going for it besides the fact that it comes in this cool wooden box. That's basically the entire reason I bought it. I'm a sucker for packaging. And the fact that this came in a goddamn, like, wooden box, um, I thought was really cool. So, yeah. There you, there you go. I, I, I may have spoken about this before, but I can't fucking remember. Um, and that's probably because I've consumed quite a bit of this bottle. Not tonight, but just like in general. Uh, it's very good. It's very, very good. And uh, I will keep exploring and expanding my palate because, you know, for me, the, 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 the love of drinking alcohol is very much the exploration of it. It's one of those things why I have, like, 30 different types of tea. Because, A, there's, like, your mood. You know, sometimes you're in the mood for some jasmine tea. Sometimes you're in a whiskey headspace. And then your mood changes. And you want some some fucking, like, chamomile. And you want some rum. Or you want some black tea. And you want some tequila. Like, your mood changes. So you want variety. And the world of liquor is fairly diverse. And, of course, you got all the subtle variations. It's like music, you know? You could say you like metal, but, like, oh, well, what kind of metal, you know? I'm a whiskey person. Well, do you like Scottish whiskey? Do you like Irish whiskey? Do you like American rye whiskey? Do you like Japanese whiskey? Who's your favorite brand? What's your distillation period? How long do you want that shit to be aged? What if it's aged in different kinds of barrels? The sheer variety of of the various ways you can do it is is pretty astounding. And while I could probably spend the rest of my life exploring the different kinds of booze, um, I think what will most likely happen is I will narrow in on what type of booze I enjoy and then just kind of get that forever. Like, Caribbean Cask is my number one whiskey. Like, full stop. There, I'm, I might in experience ones that I enjoy better, and later on, and then those will probably become my number one, but I don't feel the desire to explore as much whiskeys as I do. What I do explore is other Belvinis. That's the thing, you know? Like, I'll, I'll look around the Belvini area forever. You just, like, if there's a new fucking thing that sounds tasty, I'll be like, let's get that, you know? And so, I think, um, uh, Kanachi, Kanichi? Kanichi rum is, uh, probably gonna be my, my rum people. And I wonder if there's like a even more premium version of this shit. Because in my head, that means it's older and it's probably going to be even smoother. So I, I, I kind of want to chomp down on it. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast.
So, after years of people telling me that it was a good show and that I should watch it, I finally got around to giving True Blood a shot. It was a show that ran from 2008 to 2014 on HBO. It's like, like seven season, 80 episode show. Uh, based on a series of novels called The Southern Vampire Mysteries, written by Charlene Harris. And the show centers around a character named Sookie Stackhouse, played by Anna Paquin, um, who has some... I've only seen the first episode, so I don't know the grander plot of the show, but she's got some telepathic power um, where she can hear the thoughts of people either in her immediate vicinity or if she physically, like, touches them, then she gets, like, an increased boost, I think, of, of what's going on. Um, and it seems like some people are aware of her power and others aren't. Um, at least based on this first episode... And she meets a, a vampire named Bill. Um, and she's, like, super fucking fascinated by him. You know, in classic vampire tradition. Uh, the At least in the first episode, the parallels between this and Twilight are unreasonably high. Um, and I'm hoping that by clicking this, I will discover that... Excellent. Yes. Cool. Southern Vampire Mysteries came first. Um, the first installment, Dead Until Dark, came out in 2001. So Twilight came after. So Twilight ripped this shit off. That's good to know. That's that's good to know. Now, I am not 100% sure if mind-reading capabilities was part of vamp higher lore that's the thing with twilight and now true blood is it's kind of fucking with my preconceived notions of what at its core a vampire is capable of um and i guess that raises a far bigger question of like well they're fictional folklore characters you know so like do we go off of brom stoker who was not the first person to come up with vampires I mean um, it says right here um, uh, the notion of vampirism has existed for millennia according to Wikipedia cultures such as the Mesopotamians, the Hebrews, the ancient Greeks the Manipuri, the Romans have tales of demons and spirits which are considered precursors to modern vampires despite the occurrence of vampiric creatures in the ancient civilizations the folklore for the entity known today as the vampire originates almost exclusively from 18th century southeastern Europe where when verbal traditions of many ethnic groups of the region were recorded and published um so no like Bram Stoker's Dracula is probably one of the more famous versions of vampires as we understand them but it is not the original so you know what I'm gonna chalk this up to because so many different cultures came up with the same idea separately you're gonna have conflicting stories about what vampires are and are not you know um in twilight some vampires have different powers they can go in sunlight but they sparkle you know those sorts of things uh in true blood their teeth are in the wrong place and they're retractable um and they do burn up in the sun so there are differences and i could be here and be like that's not what a vampire is but i, I prefer this other way of thinking about it because if we're using because the show is using vampires as its fucking direct line of modern day race relations which are piss poor in this country 
Um, very much going after like the X-Men approach and using mutants to do the exact same thing as vampires are being used for in the show. But then that begs the question, because I know like werewolves show up later, like is are, are they also race relations? I don't I don't know. Probably. <laughs> um, to be quite frankly honest with you. There's definitely a lot of prejudice here against vampires. People are pretty racist against vampires. Um it is interesting. It's an interesting idea. Because unlike Twilight, which treats vampires as, like, a secret part of the world, this is a world in which vampires are very much a known entity, and then they're discriminated against. So it's an interesting balance. Um, also, it is kind of flabbergasting to me that vampires would be the, the ones to be discriminated against. You know, vampires. Immortal... Blood-sucking, super-fast, super-strong vampires should be ruling the planet. Um, but, uh, like, they have a weakness to silver in true blood. And, I, I mean, it's it's definitely something... The tri- I, I, See, this is my thing. Different sources lead you to different understandings of these mythological creatures... You could consider that silver is the traditional weakness for werewolves, right? Um, or or most lycanthropic creatures. But if you play like D&D, then silvered weapons can actually help against a number of different enemies. Um, so, you know, I, I get it. You know, it just depends on what your source material is. And I don't, I don't think that being consistent with one conception of these creatures is the right move. I do like these subtle changes because it's like reading a book and then going to see the movie about the book and having the movie do things differently from the book. It, you know, those subtle changes shake your expectations of what the show's going to be. In the very first couple of minutes, the first interaction, you see a vampire reveal themselves by having their teeth fucking extend out of their jaw in their incisor position rather than their canine position. So the teeth are already in a different spot and they behave differently than they usually do with when it comes to vampire movies. Um, and so your modern perception of what a vampire is is already shaken. And that sets it off to them being able to do whatever the fuck they want with vampires because they've already established at the start of the show that like this won't be your normal Dracula story, you know what I mean? As far as it being a pilot and being like the first introduction to the show, I think it does a pretty good job. It it le- so the the trouble with getting your first episode done right is that you have to not only introduce most of your main cast of characters. It doesn't have to be all of them. It just needs to be the majority of them, especially your protagonist. You need to introduce your characters. You need to introduce your setting. You need to introduce what the story is going to be about. You got to get all of that shit done in the first episode. And that's a that's a high order. People don't appreciate how difficult it is to do a pilot correctly. Game of Thrones did the pilot correctly. Scrubs did the pilot correctly. True Blood did the pilot correctly. You met almost all of the main characters... You knew who they were. You knew what they were about. You knew what they were like. In some cases, fairly aggressively. Um, like, I, I'm i not sure if I said it. Uh, this is the second time I'm recording this bit. Subtlety is not this show's strong point. 
Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that it's crystal clear with what these characters are like. And some of the things kind of, you know, go well and others don't. Um, I understand that having the overlapping thoughts is confusing for us, the viewer, because it's confusing for Silky Stackhouse. Um, which I can't shake that name thinking that it's like a fucking name from like Animal House or something like that. It's just, it's just such a weird name. Um, and you know, it's from 2008. So I was going to say some of the special features aren't the best, but actually they're not bad. They get the job done. Um, especially cause they're essentially the exact same special effects that they use in fucking Twilight. So, and since that's what I'm comparing it to, there you go. Um, I enjoy this more for a couple of reasons. Um, I enjoy the fact that it, for me, it's different. You know, there's a lot, I think most of the vampire media I've consumed treats vampires like this, like the secret coven. And they're always like underground and behind the scenes. And you don't really know, you know, like interview with a vampire and all the fucking versions of Dracula. Like it's always, there's an air of secrecy about it. So it's refreshing in a way for them to be just like, blam, vampires. Here they are. Here's some vampires. Um, and so that's, that's fun. The, the honest, I mean, everybody knows this bit, right? Where you got the vampire and the chick. Um, and one of them has telepathic powers. I mean, how can you, how, how is, how did Twilight get away with that? Really? She just changed who had the telepathic powers. And then kind of more or less, everything else is the same, you know? Like, it's kind of the same. Now, is that ripping off, is Twilight ripping off True Blood? Or is, are they both taking inspiration from a, a third other source? Basic vampire lore. I'm not really sure. I just don't think Twilight's very good so I'm just gonna assume that it's probably uh it was probably an inspiration for Stephanie Meyer um and what's also fun is that the actor that plays Bill the vampire his name is Stephen Moyer which is like really fucking close it's Stephanie Meyer it's a couple letters different um yeah a lot of familiar faces for me in this show in terms of actors uh the one that really leapt out of me was renee played by michael raymond james who played um balefire in once upon a time which is one of my favorite shows i love that show um and i feel like this show will fill a very similar slot in in like my my brain space as once upon a time because once upon a time also deals with like magic and fantasy it's just like disney magic and disney fantasy um and this one has vampires i know it gets werewolves um apparently silky stackhouse is half fairy so that's a thing um and i assume these other types of beings will become more known as the show goes on um but it has that same kind of like i mean it's a drama um it's not scary, at least not yet. Um, mostly because, I mean, I guess vampires can can be considered scary. One thing I did love uh, about this this idea that vampires are just actively among us was what the grandmother did, 
One of the first things the grandmother does when she finds out that there's a vampire in town is she asks if he would come speak to her, like, fucking local historian group about his firsthand experience with the Civil War if he's been around that long. And I'm like, utilizing vampires as historians is an invaluable concept. Could you imagine? They've been around for hundreds of years, you know? They've seen and done probably quite a bit. Granted, at night, so they can tell you what the last, like, 100 years were at night. Um, but the grandma's got a good point, you know? They've, they've, they've been around for a while, you know? They could have studied lots of things. These vampires should be teaching at, like, night classes at, like, every university in the world. The things you could learn from a vampire would be extremely useful. Especially if there's synthetic blood that they can consume, which basically takes the fucking um, risk out of them. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's it's an interesting idea. I also have some comparisons to draw to um, Walking Dead. It just kind of hits me like that, um, not in a bad way, but it just, you know, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of comparisons between a lot of different shows. Um, I'm enjoying it so far, though. I w- I will say that. A lot of familiar faces to to a pretty pretty funny pretty funny degree, um, and I am enjoying it. I also enjoy the fact that the first season's only like 10, 12 episodes, like it's nothing. Uh, I mean, granted, that's like a full day, but you know that's not that's not that bad. It's very consumable, especially after considering that if you were to watch Critical Role from the start of season one to present, it would take you thirty eight days straight. It is, it is almost a thousand hours of Critical Role to watch. Um, and that's just too high of a barrier of entry, god damn it. So, yeah, I know, I liked it. I did like it. I think I will, I think I will keep going with it. Um, and see, see kind of where it goes. I'm also curious to see how they handle werewolves, because if you listen to my Twilight books, you'll know that I am a far, far bigger fan of werewolves than I am of vampires. Um, but to be perfectly honest... Not that many werewolf shows. At least none that I want to watch. Um, this is this is probably going to scratch that itch for for the wolf, the werewolfing more than a more than anything else. So yeah, there you go. Um, a lot of good actors in this show too. I'm just scrolling down the cast list, which is significant. So yeah. Anyway, just want to talk about that a little bit. It's good. I mean, if you have HBO, give it a shot. If you don't, well then. You can just ignore it, I guess. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So, I woke up this morning, and I was looking through my, my streaming services, as I like to do, um, and I saw that HBO added a fucking new Studio Ghibli movie called Earwig and the Witch, which is something I had never fucking heard of. And I was like, huh, where did this come from? And so I did a little digging. Turns out it was a made-for-TV movie that came out last year. Um, And it was also Studio Ghibli's first foray into CGI. Um, Which, is it CGI? Yeah. Computer graphic image, I guess. Um... 
if you don't count like Nino Kuni and the White Witch, like the video game, which I guess would technically be their first foray. I guess first foray in terms of a a, a movie or a TV special or whatever. Anyway, it's fine. Um, we're definitely talking like bottom tier Studio Ghibli. Um, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. That honor probably goes to Tales from Earthsea as of right now. There's still a couple of Studio Ghibli movies like on fucking HBO Max that I haven't seen yet. Like My Neighbors the Yamadas and stuff like that. Um, but it's definitely on the lower end. We're talking like C minus D plus kind of area. It's the, the main character, Earwig, um, has absolutely zero character growth over the entire film. Which bothers me. Um, because for me... That is like Hallmark Studio Ghibli is the main character goes through an experience and comes out better for it. You know what I mean? Ashitaka, Chihiro, um, Sophie from Howl's Moving Cat. They all go through an ordeal and grow as individuals. Earwig doesn't do that. Earwig is the exact same from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And what that character is, is kind of a piece of shit. So they remain that kind of piece of shit the whole fucking time. And there's no character growth. So right out the gate, it like misses what a Studio Ghibli movie should be in my head. Um, especially because I have to compare it to Howl's Moving Castle. Because the source material is the same fucking author. The person who wrote Howl's Moving Castle wrote Earwig and the Witch. It's the same person. So you have to draw parallels between them because it's the same person. And it's amazing to me that the, the source material of Howl's Moving Castle is so creative and so rich and the characters are so amazing. And then this kind of comes out. And I don't know if the original source material for Earwig and the Witch was like a fucking short story or something, but it is not as nuanced or uh like what like it's just it's not it's not as interesting of a story as Howl's Moving Castle was um there are more Howl's Moving Castle books there's two more I didn't know that I should read this um it's just not as interesting by by any stretch of the imagination it's gotta be like for for kids or something it's it is much more straightforward um basically what the story is is that Earwig grew up in an orphanage I don't give a fuck that in the movie her, 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 she goes by the name of like Erica Wig or whatever. Fucking her name's Earwig. She grows up in an orphanage and then she gets adopted by a witch and a demon basically named the Mandrake. Um, both of whom were in a band with this other witch, presumably Earwig's mom. You never really find out. Um, and Earwig is basically, it's kind of like that like 90s kid movie thing where the kid's basically like a slave. You know, like James and the Giant Peach or Matilda, where like all these kids are treated like super shittily by the adults. It's basically that, the whole fucking movie. Um, but not as like traumatizing, I guess. I don't know. The James and the Giant Peach, like, uh, aunts were awful and they were really fucking well imaged and were really shitty here she like has a comfortable bed she's got her own bathroom she gets awesome food delivered to her by demons and then she just gets kind of told to like garden and stuff and is constantly under the threat of worms which 
doesn't really ever go anywhere. Um, and that I think that right there is the best single sentence I have for this movie. It doesn't really go anywhere. You, you think it does, and you're kind of along for the ride, and then it just kind of never gets to that like next stage of story. It just kind of putters along at like a fucking four, you know? Like if the movie starts at one, it, it kind of climbs a little bit and then she's like adopted by witches and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting and it goes up a little bit. And then it just fucking flatlines the entire fucking movie until it gets to this six month later epilogue at the tail end of the film and the redhead person comes back and then the movie just ends like right there. And I'm just like, you, if, if there's more to this story, you picked, like, the least interesting parts of the entire story to tell, quite frankly. It it just kind of, and then it's over. And then you're just kind of left with going, like, okay, well, if it does continue, I don't really care if it continues. You know what I mean? It just kind of, and then it's done. So, Diana Wynne-Jones was the was the author of this story and um how's moving castle and i'm like looking through she's written a metric shit ton of books in her life she passed away 2011 is when she passed away but she wrote yeah fucking ton of books and i don't see earwig on here like at all so where where is it is it a picture book it is it was a picture book picture book and book for younger readers so out of the like so, oh my god out of like the literally hundreds of things that she's written in her life then went with the most recent picture book that she had come out with so no wonder there's nothing going on in the story there is no story it was a goddamn picture book so that explains it yeah it's it's fine Things that are good about the movie, I loved the music. It's got this kind of 70s rock and roll thing going on. Very synth heavy. There's some like swinging jazz numbers that's really good. I thought that was great. I didn't mind the CG animation. Um, it's 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 a departure, but as best I could tell, the, the background art was hand-drawn. It's really hard to tell, and I think that says a lot if you can't tell the difference between when something's cg and when it's 2d hand-drawn then i think they did a really good job with the cg um so animation wise it's pretty solid uh it takes some getting used to and i feel like it does lose some of the magic but though there are definitely like some of the special effects that they do in cg where you like snap your fingers and you point and you go that is iconic studio ghibli right there so visually it very much is reminiscent of classic Studio Ghibli movies. Musically, even though it's not Joe Hisaishi, who only ever works with Hayao Miyazaki when it comes to these movies. Um, it's it's pretty solid. It was directed by Goro Miyazaki, who does have a kind of rocky track record for me when it comes to these movies. Um, although he did make one of my all-time favorite Studio Ghibli movies, and that's from Up on Poppy Hill. Uh, which is just kind of sweet, and I like that movie a lot. Um, so he is capable of a good story, and he is capable of making a good movie. This just wasn't it. This is, this is pretty low tier. Um, if you still want to see it after all of this, just go in with, like, fucking no expectations, and you might be like, eh, it was alright. I mean, it's, 
there are there are far better things I can think to do to burn an hour and twenty minutes uh, than rather watch this movie. Um, and if you want to see a really good story from the same goddamn source material, go watch Howl's Moving Castle, which has to be like fucking right up there at the top of like the best Studio Ghibli movies ever made. It's it is it is a fucking masterpiece. This is not this is not a masterpiece. This is a mistake. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. This week's episode, we're going to talk about WandaVision episode 5. And if you haven't seen WandaVision episode 5, shut the podcast off right the fuck now. Sweet Jesus Christ. Holy fuck. Okay. Wow. All right. Oh. Oh. Okay. Wow, that came out of nowhere. Holy shit. All right. So... <laughs> what the fuck does this mean? Alright. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, I'm just gonna launch right into it. So, I warned you. I warned you. I, I, I'm, I'm absolved of all guilt for this, but... End of episode 5, her, her fucking dead brother comes back, Pietro. And they fucking recast him. And it's the motherfucker who played Quicksilver in the goddamn new X-Men movies. That is so fucking good. I can't even... Oh my god. Just the fucking balls on these guys. That's insane. It's... Oh my god. Mm, Marvel... Marvel, you motherfuckers, you did it, you motherfuckers, so yeah, that was, oh man, holy shit, he shows up like right at the end, and I just, I lost my mind, cause that was amazing, I mean, it, <laughs> Marvel Marvel got Disney got X-Men back when they got 20th Century Fox. The only thing that Disney doesn't have direct access of anymore is goddamn Spider-Man. And that's why Sony's going so fucking hard on all these fucking Spider-Man movies. Um and that's why they refused to give Spider-Man up because Spider-Man. Um so they have the X-Men back. And his his presence here is flabbergasting because what we are now informed of throughout the course of the fourth and fifth episode is that everybody in here are real people, um, except the twins. The twins are an X factor um, that confuse me. Um, and I'm not sure if she kidnapped other children and brainwashed them, or if they are a pure creation that she has done. It's clear that the kids have physical presence, though, because, like, Vision's interacting with them. And Vision's the goddamn best part of the show right now, because he's fucking figuring it out and picking the pieces. And I love how Wanda tried to fucking roll credits to get him to stop, like, arguing with her. And he was just like, no, we're gonna fucking talk about this. 
and I thought that was great. Um, Vision knows of Pietro because he was there in, in fucking Sokovia. Um, so he's understandably confused as to why he was recast as X-Men Quicksilver, which is single-handedly one of the greatest moments I've ever seen in a TV show. <laughs> Holy fuck. Talk about, like, goddamn, not even a deep cut, just like the long game. The longest of long games. And now, like, it opens up a whole other fucking set of doors, you know, about what the, the fuck any of this shit, any of these shows that Marvel's making for Disney Plus is, like, capable of. It's a whole other level of, like, whoa! Um, oh my god. Oh, it was such a moment. I want to, I want to sit next to everybody I know as they watch this show to see their reaction. Because I fucking leapt out of my chair and put my hands to my face and I was like, oh! Oh my god. Okay, um... So yeah, Vision's, Vision's figuring it out that it's all a lie. And that's fascinating. Because Vision's, Vision should be dead. And the fact that Vision can think for himself and see through Wanda's bullshit. And now Wanda's playing like the I don't know what's happening card. That's weird. Um, Unless, unless it's like, I think Vision might be onto something where it was like, Either she's lying to Vision, which is possible. It's very possible. Or she is subconsciously pulling this shit off. Um, and like her powers are kind of getting away from her a little bit, which would be interesting. Um, I guess we'll see. I'm not really sure which way it's going to go. But Vision seems to be separate. And I, I, I don't know if... Like, Wanda's love of Vision is so strong that he essentially just was brought back. And the, the there's that extra bit of this is fucked up when they mentioned, like, offhandedly that this goes against Vision's living will. He didn't want to be brought back. Out of everybody in the MCU, he's, like, the only one that was realistically capable of being brought back because he's a synthetic individual, but... He didn't want to come back. And Wanda brought him back anyway. Presumably. We, we don't really know for sure. Um, before I continue talking about the show, I did want to call out the commercial real quick. Lagos brand paper towels. Um, the, with the tagline, when you make a mess you didn't mean to. Lagos is the name of the city where Wanda flew crossbones like up into the building and it exploded. And that set off the whole Sokovia Accords. So I knew Lagos was like, it was in the back of my head. I'm like, that's important. And I just couldn't remember what it was. And so I had to look it up. But that's what that was about. And so the tagline, when you make a mess you didn't mean to, that's a fucking deep cut. And why would Wanda do that to herself, you know? So maybe there is a third party, like I originally thought. And... I mean, it really does seem like Wanda's behind everything. So it's either a part of Wanda that she's not cognizantly aware of. It is Wanda and she's just bullshitting us. Or there's a third entity that's behind this. And that one I have a hard time wrapping my head around because the level of power that this individual would have to have would, would make it like one of a handful of Marvel characters 
And I don't quite see the rationale for that. Um, my, my best theory that I have right now, based on external information, not because of what's going on in the show, somebody needs to come in and basically get through to Wanda. So we need somebody, if this is Wanda, right, and if it's her goddamn creation, then you need somebody who is equally as powerful, who can come in and take her out, and somebody who has a movie coming up that Wanda plays a big part of, and that this show works into that movie. My money is on Doctor Strange coming in, because he's the only goddamn one in the established Marvel Universe who stands a goddamn chance. Everybody else is, like, fucking out of commission, right? They're all they're all AWOL. We don't really know where the fuck the vast majority of the MCU is right now. After Thanos kind of went in and fucked shit up, there's a lot of fucking people out there who are off doing whatever, you know? And how the fuck is Ant-Man going to help? It's got to be strange. It has to be. And he's going to have to come in here and fucking set this shit right. That's that's what my money is on. I think I think Strange is going to be the hero of this. Because either that or Vision's going to have to fucking break through to Wanda and get her to tear down the illusion. Which is probably what's actually going to happen. Because um, that'd make for a better show rather than Doctor Strange coming in and just fixing everything. Um, But... Man, this this episode, we we definitely got some more unsettling moments, um, which are always appreciated. Vision started to do what I want Vision to do, which is get angry. I was watching that whole like latter half of that episode where she rolled credits, and I'm like, Vision needs to fucking get emotional about this. Um, but in my opinion, he backed down too quickly. You know what I mean? Like, he fucking should have stuck with it. I mean, I don't. I don't know what this really means for Vision. Um, if he has no memory of who he was before Westview because he was dead and brought back here, then he doesn't know. He doesn't have all the memories of him and Wanda. He doesn't. He doesn't have how he feels about her or all the experiences they went through together. And that's why he doesn't recognize. That could be why he doesn't recognize Pietro because that was beforehand, right? Um, so he knows something's wrong. He just doesn't understand exactly what, maybe? But I guess Wanda doesn't... It is it is unclear. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. And I gotta be honest, it, it wasn't... It wasn't really grinding on me in those first couple of episodes because you knew it was building towards something. And then episode four hit. And then you're like, now I get it. And episode five is the first episode where it's a blend of the sitcom and the real world. And now that you see them kind of actively side by side, I'm getting real sick and tired of the sitcom stuff. Like, the fact that that's starting to crumble and we're seeing more of the cracks over there is excellent. Because I'm like, good. The sitcom stuff isn't good. It's boring it's boring it i mean it is that's why i don't watch those fucking sitcoms because they're dull um but they serve their purpose and it's it's that it's the continuing narrative of of the the idyllic life that she's desperately trying to hold on to and failing also um 
It's shown that Wanda can exit Westview and presumably have the things... Although it did say, please stand by, so maybe the whole town was just on pause while she wasn't present there. Because she leaves and throws the drone at S.W.O.R.D. and tells him to fuck off. Um, in a pretty damning show of force. Um, and my guess is that things will not be able to enter Westview anymore. Um, my, my guess for probably what's going to happen coming up here pretty soon is Vision's going to, um, is going to break free. Because that seems fairly reasonable to me. I think, I think he's going to fucking snap here pretty soon. And I think he's going to leave the boundaries of Westview. And he either is going to... Although, I guess with the clothes, maybe the if, if the changes are permanent, maybe Vision is just back. Which, Jesus Christ, how can you go on this fucking diatribe about not bringing the dog back to life when you did that with Vision? I mean, hypocrisy, thy name is Wanda. So, and fucking Pietro, who is also dead. I don't care if you recast him in one of the greatest moments of television history. But, sweet Jesus. I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Makes total sense to me that S.W.O.R.D. would want to take Wanda out. I mean, from that perspective, absolutely. She is currently imprisoning and mentally torturing thousands of people uh, against their will. She should probably be brought down. I think it's hilarious that he thought guns were going to solve that problem. There's no, there's no way in hell Wanda's going to be brought down by a fucking gun. She's either going to be brought down by Vision, who is the other big character in the MCU who I think would stand a chance, or they're going to have to go get Doctor Strange. I, I don't... I would love there to be something else. I'm pretty positive it's going to be one of those two things. It's either going to be Vision, talking her down, or it's going to be Strange fucking taking her down it's gonna be one or the other so it'll be really interesting to see which way they go with this um but oh my god just wow what an episode like it it went play like i kind of want to see it again you know still got those unsettling moments which is really fun um just just really really good stuff and more of a woo and uh, uh, Darcy, which is wonderful. And uh, Monica. All that fun stuff. Jesus Christ. <sighs> I need a nap after that episode. That was crazy. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of The Going Up Cast. I hope you enjoyed me talking about all sorts of stuff, really. Um, oh, boy. What a, what a fucking thing. And I will continue to upload Eclipse Chapters, which is coming along great. And I will see you all next week for another episode of The Going Upcast. Oh, man. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>